Book Four, Chapter Ten of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred. Chapter Ten. That Lola Quietty. 1889 to 1900. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith. In the summer of 1889, at Seascale on the Cumberland coast, Ruskin was still busy upon Prieta Rita. He had his task planned out to the finish. In nine more chapters, he meant to conclude his third volume with a review of the leading memories of his life down to the year 1875, when the story was to close passages here and there were written material collected from old letters and journals and the contents and the titles of the chapters arranged but the intervals of strength had become fewer and shorter and at last in spite of all his courage and energy he was brought face to face with the fact that his powers were ebbing away and that head and hand would do their work no more he could not finish prayer to rita but he could not leave it without a record of one companionship of his life which was it seemed all that was left to him of the old times and the old folks at home and so setting aside the plans he had made he devoted the last chapter as his forebodings told him it must be to his cousin mrs arthur seven and wrote the story of joanna's care in his bedroom at Seascow, morning after morning, he still worked, or tried to work, as he had been used to do, on journeys farther afield in brighter days. But now he seemed lost among the papers scattered on his table. He could not fix his mind upon them, and turned from one subject to another in despair, and yet patient, and kindly to those with whom, whose help he could no longer use, and who dared not show, though he could not but guess how heart-breaking it was they put the best face upon it of course drove in the afternoons about the country to moncaster castle to calder abbey where he tried to sketch once more and when the proofs of joanna's care were finally revised to wash the water but travelling now was no longer restorative it added not a little to the misfortunes of the time that two of his best friends in the outside world were disputing over a third by nobody was carlyle's repetition more valued and yet he acknowledged that froude was but telling the truth in the revelations which so surprised the public that much as he admired norton he deprecated the attack on carlyle's literary executor whose motives he understood and approved in august after his return to coniston the storm cloud came down upon him once more it was only in the summer of eighteen ninety that he was able to get about but firmly convinced that his one chance lay in absolute rest and quiet he wisely refused any sort of exertion and was rewarded by a temporary improvement in health and strength in the meantime he was obliged to hand over to others such parts of his work as others could do 
the st george guild still continued in existence though it naturally lost much of its interest and the whole of its distinctive mission when he ceased to be able to direct it the museum had quite outgrown its cottage at walkley never intended for more than temporary premises and for ten years there had been talk of new buildings at first on the spot then on the guild ground at bewley where at one time ruskin planned a fairy palace in the woods with cloistered hoisteries for the wandering student such scheme was stopped less by his illness than by want of means sheffield however did not wish to lose the museum and offered to house it if the guild would present it to the town that was of course out of the question but a few offered to take over the collection on loan the guild paying a curator was another matter and was thankfully accepted the corporation fulfilled their share of the bargain with generosity an admirable site was assigned at mearsbrook park in a fine old hall surrounded with trees and overlooking a broad view of the town and the country on april the fifteenth eighteen ninety the museum was opened by the earl of carlisle in presence of the corporation the trustees of the guild and a large assembly of friends and sheffield townspeople since then the attendance of visitors and students shows that the collection is appreciated by the public and it is to be hoped that though nominally alone it will remain there in perpetuity and that it will be maintained and used with due regard to the intentions of the founder many other plans had to be modified as he found himself less able to work and was obliged to hand over his business to others with his early books he had been dissatisfied as expressing immature views the stones of venice had been recast into two small volumes and some mark's rest written in the attempt to supplement and correct it but the original book was obviously in demand and a new edition was brought out in eighteen eighty six modern painters had also been on the condemned list the aggressive protestantism and the geological theories involved in his description of mountains he condemned as errors moreover at the time of the last edition published by mrs smith and elder eighteen seventy three he had been told that the plates which he considered a very important part of the work would not stand another impression and so he destroyed nine of them in order that no subsequent edition might be brought out in the original form he reprinted volume two in a cheap edition and began to recast the rest with annotations and additions as in montibus sanctis and celli and alant while miss s beaver selections from this saglistis found a ready sale but this did not satisfy the public and there was a continual cry for a reprint to which at last he yielded early in eighteen eighty nine the complete edition appeared with the cancelled plates reproduced he had always felt it a grievance that the enormous popularity of his works in america meant an enormous piracy towards the end of the fifties mr willie of new york had begun to print cheap ruskins not indeed illegally but without proper acknowledgment to the author 
and without any reference to the author's wishes as to form and style of production. An artist and a writer on art, insisting on delicacy and refinement as the first necessity of draughtsmanship, and himself sparing no trouble or expense in the illustrations of his own works, was naturally dissatisfied with the wretched autotypes with which the American editions caricatured his beautiful plates. Not only that, but it was a common practice to smuggle these editions, recommended by their cheapness, into other countries. Mr. Willie sent, on an average, five hundred sets of modern painters to Europe every year, the greater number to England. His example was followed by other American publishers, so that in New York alone there came to be half a dozen houses advertising Ruskin's works, and many more throughout the cities of the States. Mr. Willie, the first in the field, proposed to pay up a royalty upon all the copies he had sold if Ruskin would recognize him as accredited publisher in America. The offer of so large a sum would have been tempting had it not meant that Mr. Ruskin must condone what he had for years denounced and sanction what he strongly disapproved. The case would have been different if proposals had been made to reproduce his books in his own style under competent supervision. This was done in 1890, when arrangements were made with Mrs. Charles E. Merrill and Co. of New York to bring out the Brownwood edition of Ruskin under the editorship of Professor C. E. Norton. Though the sale of Ruskin's books in America had never until so recently brought him any profit his own business in england started in eighteen seventy one when a monthly pamphlet of falls and in eighteen seventy two with the volume of sesame and lilies prospered singularly mr george allen who while building up an independent connection still remained the sole publisher of mr ruskin's works said that the venture was successful from its earliest years it was found that the booksellers were not indispensable and that business could be done through the post as well as over the counter in spite of occasional difficulties such as the bringing out of works in parts appearing irregularly or stopping outright at the author's illnesses there was a steady increase of profit rising in the author's later years according to mr allen to an average of four thousand pounds Fortunately, it was that this bold attempt succeeded. The two hundred thousand pounds he inherited from his parents had gone, chiefly in gifts and in attempts to do good. The interest he used to spend on himself, the capital he gave away until it totally disappeared, except what is represented by the house he lived in and its contents. The sale of his books was his only income, and a great part of that went to pensioners to whom, in the days of his wealth, he pledged himself, to relatives and friends, discharged servants, institutions in which he took an interest at one time or other. But he had sufficient for his wants, and no need to fear poverty in his old age. In this quiet retreat at Brownwood, the echoes of the outer world did not sound very loudly. Ruskin had been too highly praised and too roundly abused during fifty years of public life 
to care what magazine critics and journalists said of him. Other men of his standing could solace themselves, if it be solace, in the consciousness that a grateful country has recognized their talents or their services. But civic and academic honors were not likely to be showered on a man who had spent his life in strenuous opposition to academicism in art and letters and in vigorous attacks upon both political parties and upon the established order of things and yet oxford and cambridge awarded him the highest honours in their gift in eighteen seventy three the royal society of painters in watercolours voted him honorary member a recognition which gave him great pleasure at the time at different dates he was elected to various societies geological zoological architectural horticultural historical anthropological metaphysical and to the Ateneum and alpine clubs he was elected honorary member of the academic of florence in eighteen sixty two of the academy of venice eighteen seventy seven of the royal academies of antwerp and brussels in eighteen ninety two and was also an honorary member of the american academy but he did not seek distinctions and he even declined them as in the case of the medal of the royal institute of british architects a more striking form of distinction than such titles is the fact that he was the first writer whose contemporaries during his lifetime formed a society to study his work the first ruskin society was founded in eighteen seventy nine at manchester and was followed by the societies of london glasgow and liverpool in eighteen eighty seven the ruskin reading guild was formed in scotland with many local branches in england and ireland and a journal subsequently renamed igdrasil to promote study of literary and social subjects in ruskin and in writers like carlyle and tolstoy taking a standpoint similar to his in eighteen ninety six ruskin societies were formed at birmingham and in the isle of man many classes and clubs for the study of ruskin were also in operation throughout america during his lifetime his eightieth birthday was the signal for an outburst of congratulations almost greater than even admirers had expected the post came late and loaded with flowers and letters and all day long telegrams arrived from all parts of the world until they lay in heaps and opened for the time being a great address had been prepared with costly illumination on vellum and binding by mr cobden saunderson year by year it said in ever widening extent there is an increasing trust in your teaching an increasing desire to realize the noble ideals you have set before mankind in words which we feel had brought nearer to our hearts the kingdom of god upon earth it is our hope and prayer that the joy and the peace you have brought to others may return in full measure to your own heart filling it with the peace which comes from the love of god and the knowledge of the love of your fellow man among those who subscribed to these sentiments were various people of importance such as royal academicians 
the Royal Society of Painters in Watercolors, the Trustees of the British Museum and of the National Gallery, the St. George's Guild and Ruskin Societies, with many others. And the address was presented by a deputation who reported that they had found him looking well and extremely happy. A similar illuminated address from the University of Oxford ran thus. We venture to send you, as you begin your eighty-first year, these few words of greeting and goodwill, to make you sure that in Oxford the gratitude and reverence with which men think of you is ever fresh. You have helped many to find in life more happiness than they thought it held, and we trust there is happiness in the later years of your long life. You have taught many to see the wealth of beauty in nature and in art, prizing the remembrance of it, and we trust that the sights you have best loved come back to your memory with unfading beauty. You have encouraged many to keep a good heart through dark days, and we trust that the courage of a constant hope is yours. The London Ruskin Society sent her a separate address, and to show that if not a prophet in his own country, he was, at any rate, a valued friend. The Coniston Parish Council resolved, and carried unanimously, says the local journal, with applause, that the congratulations of this council be offered to Mr. John Ruskin, on the occasion of his eightieth birthday, together with the warm thanks which they and all their neighbours feel for the kindness he has shown and the many generous acts he has done to them and theirs during twenty-seven years of residence at Coniston, where his presence is most truly appreciated, and his name will always be most gratefully remembered. But as the year went on, he did not regain his usual summer strength. Walking out had become a greater weariness to him, and he had to submit to the humiliation of a bath-chair. To save himself even the labour of creeping down to his study, he sat usually in the turret room upstairs, next to his bedchamber, but still with the look of health in his face and fire in his eyes quite unconquered. He could listen while Baxter read the news to him, following public events with interest, or while Mrs. Seven or Miss Seven read stories, novel after novel but always liking old favourites best, and never anything that was unhappy. Some pet books he would pore over or drowse over by the hour. The last of these was one in which he had a double interest, for it was about ships of war, and it was written by the kinsman of a dear friend. Some of the artists he had loved and helped had failed him or left him, but Burne Jones was always true. One night, going up to bed, the old man stopped alone to look at the photograph from Philip Burne Jones' portrait of his father. That's my dear brother Ned, he said, nodding goodbye to the picture as he went. Next night, the great artist died, and of all the many losses of these later years, this one was the hardest to bear. So when a little boy lent him a fleet in being, he read and re-read it, 
then got a copy for himself and might have learnt it by heart so long he pored over it but when the little boy or his sisters went to visit the dear pa dear papa as he liked children to call their old friend he had now scarcely anything to talk about he just looked at us and smiled they would report and we couldn't think what to say he had his bright days when he would hear business discussed though a very little of it was wearisome it was impossible to bring before him half the wants and wishes of his correspondents who could not yet realize his weakness and besought the notice they fancied so easily given yet in that weakness one could trace no delusions none of the mental breakdown which was taken for granted if he gave an opinion it was clear and sound enough of course with the old ruskinian waywardness of idea which always puzzled his public but he knew what he was about and knew what was going on he was like the aged queen awed in the saga who rose late and went to bed early and if any one asks after her health she answered sharply but all the love and care spent on him could not keep him with us there came the green yule that makes a fat kirkyard and in january of nineteen hundred hardly a house in the neighbourhood was free from the plague of influenza in spite of strictest precautions it invaded brantwood on the eighteenth of january he was remarkably well as people often are before an illness fay as the old northern folklore has it towards evening when mrs seven went to him for the usual reading it was edna lyle's in the golden days his throat was irritable and he ached all over they put him to bed and sent for dr parsons his constant medical attendant who found his temperature as high as one hundred and two degrees and feared the consequences but the patient as he always did refused to be considered ill and ate his dinner and seemed the next day to be really better there was no great cause for alarm though naturally some for anxiety and in reasonable hopes of amendment the slight attack was not made public on saturday morning the twentieth all appeared to be going well until about half-past ten suddenly he collapsed and became unconscious it was the dreaded failure of heart after influenza his breathing weakened and through the morning and through the afternoon in that historic little room lined with his turners he lay falling softly asleep no efforts could revive him there was no struggle there were no words the bitterness of death was spared him and when it was all over and those who had watched through the day turned at last from his bedside sunset and the evening star shone bright above the heavenly lake and the clear-cut blue of coniston fells next morning brought messages of hurried condolence and monday such a chorus from the press as made all the praises of his lifetime seem trifling and all its blame forgotten if only in his years of struggle and despair he had known the place he should win on the tuesday came a telegram offering a grave in westminster abbey 
the highest honour a nation can give to its dead. But his own mind had long since been made plain on that point, and his wishes had not been forgotten. If I die here, he used to say, bury me at Coniston. I should have liked, if it happened at Hernhill, to lie with my father and mother in Shirley churchyard, as I should have wished, if I die among the Alps, to be buried in the snow. We carried him on Monday night down from his bedchamber and laid him in the study. There was a pane of glass let into the coffin lid, so that the face might be kept in sight, and there it lay, among lilies of the valley, and framed in a wreath sent by Mr. Watts, the great painter, a wreath of the true Greek laurel, the victor's crown, from the tree growing in his garden, cut only thrice before, for Tennyson and Leighton and Burne Johns. It would be too long to tell of all such tokens of affection and respect that were heaped upon the coffin, from the wreath of the Princess Louis down to the tributes of humble dependents. Above a hundred and twenty-five we counted, some of them the costliest money could buy, some valued no less for the feeling they expressed. I am not sure that the most striking was not the village tailor's, with this on its label. There was a man sent from God, and his name was John. On the Wednesday we made our sad procession to the church. Through storm and flood, the village was in mourning and round the churchyard gates men, women, and children stood in throngs. The coffin was carried in by eight of those who had been in his employ, and the church filled noiselessly with neighbours and friends who, after the hymn and the Lord's Prayer and a long silence, passed up the aisles for their last look, and to heap more offerings of wreaths and flowers around the bier. At dusk, tall candles were lit, and so, through the winter's night, watch was kept. Thursday, the 25th, brought together a great assembly, great for the remoteness of the place and inclemency of the weather. The country folk have a saying, Happy is the dead, and the rain rains on. And the fells were darkly clouded, and the back roared by, swollen to a torrent. The church was far too small to hold the congregation, which included most of his personal friends and the representatives of many public bodies. A crowd stood outside in the storm while the service went on. It began with a hymn written for the occasion by Canon Ronsley, who with the vicar of Hawkshead, Brantwood's parish church, read the psalms. A hymn comes at the times of stillness as of even, was sung by his friend, Miss Wakefield. And the lesson read by Canon Richmond arrived officially to represent the Bishop of Carlisle, but to most of us representing old times and comradeships of his youth and early manhood. The vicar of Coniston and the Reverend Reginald Maester, on behalf of the Dean of Christ Church, also took part in the service also took part in the service. When the dead march sounded, the coffin was covered with a pall given by the rusking linen industry of Keswick, 
lined with bright crimson silk and embroidered with the motto on to this last and with his favorite wild roses showered over the gray field just as they fall in the primavera of botticelli there was no black about his bearing except for what we wore for our own sorrow it was remembered how he hated black so much that he would even have his mother's coffin painted blue and among the white and green and violet of the wreaths that fill the chancel none was more significant in its sympathy than mrs seven's great cross of red roses as we carried him down the churchyard path a drop or two fell from the bouts but a gleam of sunshine the first after many days shot along the crags from under the cloud and the wind paused standing there by the graveside who could help being thankful that he had found so lovely a resting place after so tranquil a falling to sleep at his feet parted only by the fence and garden is the village school and who does not know how he loved the children of coniston at his right hand are the graves of the beavers miss susan beaver lies next to him over the spot hang the thick boughs of a fir tree who does not know what he has written of his favorite mountain pine and behind the church shut in with its dark yews rise the crags of coniston those that he wearied for in his boyhood beneath which he prayed in sickness to lie down and rest the crags alone on coniston end of book four chapter ten recording by cheyenne arrowsmith end of the life of john ruskin by william gershom collingwood